0: You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi,
1: I'm Brian Williams. We're back with the Small Print. And today, my guest is Tyler Mongan. And I'd like you to introduce yourself, please, Tyler, the way you like to be introduced.
0: Okay, aloha. My name's Tyler Mongan. Um, you want to say something about myself right now?
1: Yeah, please. How, who, okay, who are you? How do you describe yourself these days?
0: Sure. <laughs> um right now i'm the uh chief learning officer and co-founder of an organization called haku global and our mission is to accelerate leadership future intelligence Uh, we have um, online training programs offline trainings as well and facilitations that just help help leaders think differently about the future from a um, specific specifically using a lot of neuroscience based techniques
1: thank you so much yeah. We'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to really have a conversation to you, with you today about your work with the Association of Professional Futurists. I know you were involved with quite an interesting projects that they put together yes. where you were ended up looking at the future geopolitics of the Arctic Circle. So could you sort of describe that very briefly and then we'll take it from there?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I was part of a, the 2020 fellowship um, for the Association of Professional Futurists. Um, our goal was to look at uh, geopolitics around the globe uh, with the time horizon of 2050. And my focus was on the Arctic Circle and Arctic geopolitics, and specifically around the idea of um, this idea of the great game, which is these, uh, you know, the top global uh, organiz- uh, countries kind of competing for uh, land masses and resources around the globe.
1: That's really interesting. So the yep. piece that you were looking at in particular, who were the, the players in your piece of the great game?
0: Yeah. So my piece, uh, we focused in on the Arctic Circle, and so uh, we really looked at, um, you know, the, the main players there, who are Russia, uh, U.S., um, you know, different or different countries in Europe, Canada, um, and also uh, some countries that aren't really specifically usually related to the Arctic Circle, like uh, Russia, because they have. Um, uh, Interests in global domination in some ways, right, through uh, their Polar Silk Road, which is linked to their um, their BRI uh, programs.
1: Yeah. And how does that play out when you start looking a bit further ahead to 2050? What are the factors that you're looking at? What are those yeah. external drivers of change that make tomorrow different from today in the world we're living in right now?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it was interesting. When I first started to look at the Arctic Circle, I, I didn't have a lot of uh, background and their experience in that at all, um, you know, I really had only heard what I heard through like the mainstream media or main news sources. And it was really all about like climate change, right? Uh, that the uh, ice caps are melting um, and this is a big global disaster. And that was kind of the driving force. But when you really start to look uh, deeper into the Arctic circle, and what's going on there? Um, yes, the ice melting is a big driving force of change in the region, um, but it's, what I found out was the, the reasons why things were changing and why people wanted to change or not change were very interesting. So there's a lot of resources in the Arctic, or at least assumed resources, because we don't know. But there is estimates that uh, it has one of the largest reserves of oil. Uh, on the planet, there we don't know for sure, but that's the assumption. Um, so that's one of the drivers of you know companies and countries wanting to get in there. Uh, there's also fisheries, which is another big um, aspect of the Arctic that's very um, very interesting as a driver for people wanting to get in there and the resources that are available through that. And also there is the strategic geopolitical advantage too of the Arctic. Um, you know, for example, as ice caps melt. It makes a direct link between, let's say, Russia and Canada or Russia and the U.S. Uh, You can just go straight over through the Arctic to to get there. So from a military perspective, there could be um, some interest there or also just a transportation um, perspective as well. So that is the other big component that I think the Arctic Circle is um, really interesting is that it opens up new transportation routes that are specifically favorable to um, Russia transportation.
1: Yeah, but how does that change the balance of power as we know it today in this sort of yeah. world order that we have? And we started to see all those sorts of cracks unfolding with what's going on in Afghanistan to right. the, different, the different leadership that it seems to be showing face at global leadership tables. How do you see the Arctic playing into that? Because it's not a conversation that we generally have when we talk about mm real geopolitics. We tend to talk more about things going on in the Middle East rather than what's going on up North. So how mm-hmm. does that sort of center of the the action, the center of the face of the play that's unfolding change in your perspective when you start to add these new territories and these new scenes into the conversation?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um... I think it you know, plays a lot more roles than we think it does, especially the Arctic Circle. Uh, it, tend, you know, it, it tends to be a place that has been um, very cooperative and coordinated. Um, there's an organization called the Arctic Council. Um, it's a member of you know, a, few, um, a few of the countries or all the countries in the Arctic region. And then also there's some countries that are tangential that kind of support that uh, council as well. Uh, just so everybody knows, the main ones that are in the Arctic Council are Canada, U.S., Russia. Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Finland, and Sweden, right? So those are the main ones that are really associated with the Arctic. Uh, one of the main things that the council helps to do, uh, aside from, say, coordinating like safety and rescue issues, but also kind of mitigating any potential conflicts that start to arise before they arise, um, one of the big things there is the um, economic zones. So uh, countries have a certain amount of... of um, claim, let's say, to the resources off, their, off their, their physical land reaching into the ocean, right? And that's their economic zone. Um, it's usually governed by the UNESCO uh, laws of the sea. Um, but there has been in the past some interesting conflicts that have come out of that. For example, uh, in the 1960s, there was the Cod Wars um, that happened between Iceland and England. And what happened is as uh, England wants access to fisheries and Iceland wants access to the same fisheries, they can create conflict. Well, the conflict actually was happening um, on uh, within Iceland uh, economic zones and um, it did get a little heated at times. I mean, the Navy UK Navy was involved. Uh, There was ramming going on of ships. Um, So there was actually some real physical contact uh, conflict going on that people weren't aware of. Um, It wasn't resolved until like the 19, I think nineties even. Um, So it was like a 20 year kind of conflict that was going on between the fisheries between England and Iceland. So we saw that that little taste of kind of conflict that can happen in the region, right? Uh, even between countries that are typically uh, allies, right, or favorable to each other. So what happens when uh, the fisheries shift more or when transportation routes open more, uh, when new resources are discovered, um, does that create more conflict? And that was one of the things we were looking at. And what it does is, uh, it does open a lot of potential for that. Um, as as I was looking at it, one of the things we were looking at is um, what would play out, let's say, as ice continues to melt in the region, All right, Because that's one of the trends that's been happening. Um, and what would be kind of the overarching themes of the region? And what we came up with was this idea of a colored, a colored kind of Arctic. So there would be the one, the one option would be a white Arctic. Now that would be an Arctic where we actually see a reversal of the ice melting, and it actually goes back to a, a, a colder state, which could happen, right? We don't know yet. Um, under that, we kind of you know all the trends that we see moving forward would probably slow down, right Because the routes would not be open, the fisheries would not be open. The other option we said was, well, if things continue to melt, it would be kind of this blue Arctic, right, more ocean. And then within that blue Arctic, you could have two potential Scenarios. One would be a green Arctic, where there's like a, a sustainable development. There's cooperation in the region between the players, and the other could be a red Arctic. And in the red Arctic, there would be more conflict. There would be more isolation of the region. So, for example, um, you know, in a green Arctic, we'd probably just see some of the similar trends we're seeing. Uh, you know, organizations collaborating over re- uh, research. Um, you know, people respecting each other's um, economic zones. Um, Even as fish move or as the resources are discovered, um, you would see um, conflict mitigated by the Arctic Council, let's say. But uh, if we move into a red Arctic, right, we'd see the increasing conflict. We'd probably see countries like Russia starting to really um, take control of their borders and region that they own. And even creating some more isolationism, we'd see military buildup in the region. Um, and we'd also see some interesting partnerships, probably form. probably China and Russia would form some more partnerships in the region. Um, we'd also probably see some countries that you wouldn't suspect forming partnerships, maybe together form partnerships. So you might see like Russia partnering more with um, Scandinavian countries in some ways, uh, depending on you know how the, how the US and Canada uh, respond. Um, you'd also probably see the US build up more. Uh, military in Canada as well, more military buildup in the region. And recently, even I think within the past couple of years, the U.S. has uh, given a designation of that region as kind of a a region of strategic competition now, whereas before the U.S. hasn't been really interested in the Arctic because they saw that ice as a really nice barrier and protective layer. Um, But as that ice melts, they see more potential um, challenges and threats from, uh, let's say, Russia.
1: Does the Greenland story play into that at all? Because that's also emerging as a geopolitical point of interest between both Eastern and Western interests, especially with what's going on now with rare earth metals and the requirements mm. for the, the future sort of green, sustainable energy economy. That form part of your look at what's going on in that part of the world at all?
0: Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, you know, Greenland definitely has resources. Um that are available. I think. I think one of the things we looked at too was uh, Greenland and Iceland and in, in, in that region being a choke point militarily too. So whoever controls Greenland um, definitely has a, a military advantage in some way. But I think the mineral component, yeah. There's, you know, there's supposedly a lot of minerals in the Arctic already. Uh, a lot of that part that has the minerals and the oil is controlled by Russia. So Greenland would be a, a real asset for for countries to have. I think that's why the US was interested in it. I think that's why uh, people, global players like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates um, have uh, invested in that region and are looking to extract resources from there. Um, we didn't, I didn't look at it too much though, uh, just in Graceland individually.
1: Okay, but the point that I really wanted to get to in this conversation, now that you've given us a whole lot of context context there, and you did sort of speak to a lot of the things that I was hoping that you were going to speak to, is that almost everything that you've spoken about when it comes to the importance of the Arctic in the future over the next sort 20, 30 years are very much drawing attention back to the real world and, again, away from the virtual world. When you say things Mm. like transport, why does that even matter in a world where we're all being told you're kind of not going to be flying anywhere or going anywhere anyway, and you should be happy with more virtual experiences for the good of the planet, and also because we have the marvelous technology available to us. So that's a sort of transport mm-hmm. piece. Also on the resource side, I mean, you mentioned things like rare earth metals that we're speaking about, but also oil, which of course was the great boom that gave the Nordic nations all their marvelous benefits mm-hmm. that they've had over the last couple of generations. But those are all sort of, technologies the conversation has moved away from even as the big power and money interests are maintaining an interest in those real resources Mm. the conversation in the media we hear around us is that you know we're moving away from the petrol based economy we're moving away from petrol and oil we are moving towards a green economy where you know we don't want to have these sorts of petrol based energy sources anymore But what I'm hearing you say is that the reality on the ground is not quite as simple as that, that there are real choke points, real choke points in terms of mobility, in terms of energy, in terms of food sources, speaking about the fisheries once again, Mm -hmm. that are the points of real conflict and collaboration going forward. And that's why this conversation is so interesting to me, because so many conversations are about virtual and about how communications technology can replace a whole lot of things in the real world. And listening to you, it just doesn't seem to be quite that simple. What would you respond to that point? Would you agree or disagree?
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, I think you know, with COVID, for example, one of the things I just recently looked at is how is that how is it impacting the Arctic? Which might seem like it. it, How could that impact (laughs) the Arctic? Why is there a connection there? Right. Um, One of the things we looked at though was the recent uh, Suez Canal blockage, right, from that ship, right, and part of that. The issue there, part of it, partly, I think, was because of supply chains were being disrupted. And then you also have this ship that gets stuck and it disrupts it even more, right? So, and this was all COVID, tangentially related to COVID. And at that same time, Russia said, well, hey, we've got a sea route through the Arctic, right? Then um, the Northeast, uh, uh, the Northern Sea Route, you know, so we could use that, um, right, as an alternative to the Suez Canal if that gets blocked, right? right. So, um, there was a big opportunity there for Russia, and I think they they showed that hey, uh, this is important. This is relevant in the world. You know, it's um, even though there is still uh, it's not still a, a free zone to transport through year round. Um, strategically, it is advantaged to have it uh, open and available, right? Um, because the situations like that. So, um, you know, from a, a, a mo- like a, from a transportation perspective, the Arctic is a real asset because you can move things a lot faster. Through that region, uh, there's a lot less distance they have to travel. You have the risks, of course, of, um, of ice and the challenges of the weather. But you know, as the ice melts more, um, there's an incentive for Russia to um, utilize that space. And I think globally, there's an incentive too, right, from a, a financial um, and a time constraint um, perspective. But also, I think there's an incentive for Russia to actually speed up that process of opening up the, the Northern Sea Route. Um, and even encouraging the ice to melt, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if Russia is doing something to increase that, you know, ice melting. Um, I don't know if they are or not, but, I, you know, if I was Russia, why not? I mean, I want that sea route opened up because that's a huge asset for me. I can charge um, fees to go through there. I have all the ports in the region, so people have to use my ports. Um, I become uh, a bigger player uh, globally and in more significant importance. And also I have access to the ocean. Uh, in a new way, so militarily, that's um, an advantage as well. You know, so I think that's just just from the sea route perspective. I think you know it's a, it's a real tangible asset, right? That we're not we're not talking about a lot um, now. From the oil perspective, too. I mean, there there is potentially a lot of oil there. Um, there is a lot of development in the region to extract that oil. It is very risky and challenging. It's expensive. Um, there's a lot of you know one of the, the challenges is there. It takes a lot of long term planning. For oil extraction, and it's hard to plan long term in the Arctic. Still, that's one of the big things. And if oil, and there is a certain number, uh, a certain price that oil has to be at for it to be, um, you know, financially viable to extract oil from the region. So, if prices of oil go up and are are high, um, it's actually an advantage for. Um, it, it makes sense to develop in the Arctic region if prices of oil go down and get cheaper. It's not so much an advantage, right? So that'll be interesting to see. You know, does um, a movement towards more sustainable, um, you know, sustainable energy sources, does that drive the price of oil up or down? And if it drives the price of oil up, then maybe it could actually inspire investment in the Arctic region um, for long term, right? You know, because you maybe com- other countries and places are producing less oil. Um, or, um, I don't know, there's, there's definitely different things to think about and consider there. Um, and then the food issue. Yeah, that's a real, that's a real issue. There's a lot of fish migration happening, um, creating new patterns of migration because of the ice melting and the water temperatures are changing. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, I think England just had, a they were, they were trying to, uh, petition for a certain part of the Arctic ocean to be able to fish in and they got rejected or something. I mean, it's a real, it's a real issue for countries, right? That they can access those new fisheries, but also the fisheries are moving. So countries that maybe used to have a fishery uh, of a certain type of fish, no longer has access to that fish um, or they're losing access to it. Um, and their fishing, the fishing vessels are, are moving along with the fish, but then it's creating conflicts because it's moving into on the zones of other countries. Uh, these are real tangible things that are happening. I don't you know after looking at the Arctic um, and out to 2050, um, I would say that region's going to heat up more in a sense of both uh, physically and uh, and geopolitically. So I don't, I don't see even as we move towards more sustainable energy, more renewable energies, uh, we talk more about the digital world, um, I think the, the physical space will also become just as important or more important.
1: That's a really good point. And I suppose it also comes back to some of the other things that I've been thinking about in terms of the the challenges between growth and sustainability and Mm -hmm. progress and conservation and the challenges that we're going to face in the very, very real world when it comes to real resources. Once again, we've kind of got two choices. Either we push ahead with growth so there's more Mm -hmm. to share between more of us, or we double down on policies that preference sustainability, but the backside of that is increasing conflict, because if you're not growing your pie, you have to be then more militant about how you divide what is already on the table. So Mm. I think that this region, again, is a great metaphor for those bigger conversations, again, playing out across the world. And I think the one interesting thing that we can go back to that you mentioned a little bit was how Russia does have some incentives that might not be aligned with everyone else's incentives. And that, of course, Mm -hmm. is something that you have to look at if you do play in the futures or leadership space, that incentives do tend to eat your best laid intentions for breakfast. (laughs) If your incentives aren't aligned, you're going to get you're not going to get the action, the means, or the end that you are necessarily intending. Mm-hmm. I think that's perhaps another mistake that we're making in our conversations around sustainability and the future, not just the whole sort of the fact that if we are preferencing sustainability, we are admitting that we are going to have to accept more conflict going forward. This mm. is the case that sustainability from an environmental perspective mm. uh, is not necessarily as desired by all mm. geopolitical mm. powers in the same mm. ways. So maybe mm. you could talk to that point a bit more. It's a very uncomfortable point, because if you sort to bring yep. these things up in polite company, people will say, of course, climate change is bad. And of course, we <laughs> must stop it. But that is a very sort of Western privileged, developed position to take. When you take emotion and ethics off the table and look at pure economics and incentives, not everyone thinks in exactly the same way. So could you maybe interrogate hmm. that point a bit more? I mean, we can use the Arctic as a metaphor if you want to bring any other things yeah. into it, we can. But I think it's a point worth thinking about, that if incentives aren't aligned, we're simply not going to get aligned actions.
0: Yeah. I totally agree. That's it's a it's one of the I think one of the things I realized in um, looking at the Arctic was that you know initially I was naive thinking like of course everybody wants uh, a more sustainable planet right but when you really look at um, at what's at stake in the Arctic um, then you realize quickly that wow there's you know for someone like Russia there's I mean it's, it, it could completely change their economic and geopolitical position. Um, quickly, if the Arctic uh, ice melts and they have access to those resources, um, there seems to be almost no incentive for them to support um, climate change mitigation. You know, I mean, you know, for example, if you look at just Russia in general, I mean, it, it tends to be a colder climate. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden you get warmer weather there across the board, you can grow food longer, uh, you have land more access to land masses that you didn't have access to before because, like Siberia, for example, um, becomes warmer and yeah, you're going to have some some challenges in there because of the changing of the climate. But you're going to have access to a lot more uh, livable and uh, producible lands, you know. And that's just from the land perspective. Then you have the ocean side as well. So countries like Russia, I think, have a huge advantage there. And I think um, if we don't understand that, we just kind of ignore that conversation. Then we miss a lot of what's going on. Um, for example, you can see in California, you know, this over this past year, um, which is one of the more, you know, touted as one of the more like uh, environmentally friendly, you know, sustainable energy states mm-hmm. in the U.S. And they're having like rolling blackouts, right? Um, in the in their in like L.A., for example right? Because they're using renewables and the renewables aren't producing consistently enough. Um, and that puts you at a big disadvantage. If you put a whole country on that model um, and you're trying to compete against a country that's on a, a consistent energy source model um, with, a renew- with not using renewables as much, um, it's, it's a very different world you're playing in, right? You're trying to compete with someone who's playing um, you know, in, in a different mindset, different f- paradigm. Um, so I think if countries, uh, it seems like to me at least, if countries move towards a, like 100% renewable sustainable energy and they don't get a consistent reliable energy source, and they're trying to compete with Russia, let's say in China, um, who don't care about sustainability maybe as much, maybe they'll, maybe they'll do it on the surface, but they won't care as much really, if you look at the, the, what they're giving up, um, then you're going to be this disadvantaged potentially. And if you move your entire system off of, let's say fossil fuels, um then and something happens to your renewable energy source you're going to be in trouble right and and we can see that there's tons of development going on i mean china and russia are they're not they're they're definitely co- collaborating on building pipelines um to move oil and gas um and these are like these are long term plans too they're not like short term it's not like in the next like 5 years they're like 10 year plans right so they see it as a viable option into the future they're not going to give it up right um, so it'll be interesting to see what what how that changes the dynamics globally, and I think people need to talk about that. I think uh, the the people who are really pushing for renewables, uh, sustainable energy sources within their countries, need to understand like how a backup plan, and also the the second, third order consequences, and how they're going to compete on the global stage with countries that aren't using that same model.
1: Been speaking and we have been speaking more about the sort of geopolitical level, but how does this yep. roll down into the corporate sphere? Because that's another sort of far mm. future trend that we've definitely started seeing that previously countries' interests were more closely aligned with the companies that were domiciled within their geographic borders. Mm. But this is really breaking down and shifting from an ethics, from a morality, from a legal code, from a freedom of speech and censorship perspective. Increasingly, we're seeing that. Massive global businesses have a conflict of interest between different world orders and different Mm. sets of norms and incentives. So how do you see this playing out pragmatically, realistically, not necessarily the way it should be, but the way it is likely to play out when you're talking about a world where we've got very few companies that have outsized market control and they have very split interests between the interests of the Washington and Beijing consensus. If we want to sort of oversimplify you know, mm-hmm. the problem to, to that sort of extent, how do you see the the corporate elements playing into this and reinforcing or perhaps pushing back against some of those trends and forces that you've spoken about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about it a lot, but it is an interesting question. Um, You know, one of the things I would say I I could see is, um, you know, companies that are really reliant on, let's say, let's just take the, like the oil industry, for example, and that's like kind of their industry. I could see them shifting and moving more towards uh, working with China and Russia, right? and moving away from the countries that are that are not supporting them, right? I mean, they're going to have to to survive. And at the same time, they have the skill set and expertise. It's just not wanted anymore. Um, so they're going to just they're going to move, right? They're going to move their their operations. Um, I don't know if they would still be based in the U.S. even, right? Um, or they might. I can also see, you know, for example, carbon credits. There's a lot of talk about that again uh, and being a, a big a big deal. So I could see companies, you know, operating in the U S um, you know, saying they're more environmentally friendly, you know, they have governance that's responsible um, but the and buying lots of carbon credits, but then operating, doing most of their operations in um, non, you know, non uh, sustainable energy and non-renewable energy. That's kind of, you know, going against what they're doing. So it's almost like they're, they're, they're paying to play, you know, you um, it's like they're paying to play in the wrong market in a sense or the, the unfavorable market to their country. Um, and they'll have to do a lot of like PR I think, you know, to really market themselves. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of, there's a sense that I feel like a lot of people don't care so much. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about sustainability and renewable energy. Um, you know, but everybody's pumping gas every day in their car. Right. Um, and they're using their power and electricity, and they never ask where those things come from. Most people don't care, you know. Really, when it comes down to it, I think you know there's a louder voice out there that might say they care. Um, but you know, I worked in sustainability in Hawaii for many years. You know, and uh, as an island, it has a great opportunity to be a very sustainable place. And um, you know, but at the same time, we have a uh, uh, what is it? The the electric company is a monopoly, right? And most of our energy actually is. Uh, shipped in on ships, right? So, you know, we we want to be something that maybe we we can't be that doesn't make economical sense. Um, and I think companies are going to have to have to fight with that, right? They're going to, I think, there's going to be a lot of conflict within companies themselves that they profess that they are, you know, on board with a certain type of, you know, ethical standard with, you know, that's set by governments around sustainability, renewable energy, for example, uh, but then internally you'll find people who are, um, who are conflicted because they realize it's not true, right? You know, and I think that's a lot of what we see anyways in companies, you know, for example, like the, the Googles or the Microsofts and that it's kind of touted as like this amazing culture and they're doing great work. But when you really get in there and you talk to people who are in there, uh, the environment is toxic, right? It just has the same problems as other companies. So I think the same kind of thing happening. We'll see like a very surface layer of what the company's doing and then a behind the scenes of reality. Um, and I think it just plays into the same thing we're talking about, right? It's like this, the, the rea- this, uh, this false reality of the digital and um, off- online world versus the, re- the, the dirty reality of the offline world, right? Uh, it's never as clean as we think it is. Um, I think it's just going to get exaggerated.
1: Yeah, you make a very good point there. And when it comes down to it, you know, like we can't really expect companies to make ethical choices. Companies are by design amoral instruments. They operate right. within the within really two constraints, the demands of their customers who are clearly not changing their minds. I mean, even yeah. right now, as we are speaking, the leader of Extinction Rebellion in the UK has been called to account for driving a diesel car. And she laughs and says, but it's the system. So I'm going to make the choice that's basically cheapest <laughs> and most convenient for me. I mean, the irony of that position, she yeah. speaks for everyone. I mean, she's she's on the more moral side of the consumer side. So if she's not prepared to change her perspective, why would the companies that are fulfilling her the more virtuous side of the markets needs change their position. unless, yes. of course, you're bringing, you're changing the incentives and you can change the incentives either through sticks or through carrots, right? Yep. So on the sort of stick side, you have to look at regulation. And on the carrot side, you've got to look more at education and innovation once again. Hmm. I suppose that comes down to a worldview-ready question that we're talking about. Because if you really want to effect change, you you either have to change the rules of the game or you Mm. have to change the game itself that you're playing. And I suppose the challenge from a rules-based fix towards sustainability in a more sustained economy is that if you set rules, even if they are very, very good rules, but only the good children obey the rules, the naughty kids don't, where those mm-hmm. naughty kids are countries that have incentives that are not aligned with the rules that the, the good policemen of the world have put in place, or whether they are companies that are essentially amoral and trying to maximize their profits based on what their customers want and what the rules they can find, or you're going to sort of find this sort of rule arbitrage, right? Where the sort of dirty Mm. money follows towards where the naughty kids are, where the rules are less well-enforced and where they are easier rules. So I'm not convinced that the pessimistic worldview, that we've all kind of been told we have to accept that the way to fix sustainability is through more rules, is Mm. necessarily going to lead to a sustainable, sustainable sustainability equilibrium going forward, because the incentives simply haven't been changed. Now, the other alternative is to look mm. at a more optimistic way of solving those problems through innovation. And the whole sort of thinking there is that when you take the word sustainability, you can look at it in two ways. You know, sustainability is, you know, engineering a system in order to sustain us for as long as possible, which is a good thing. But sustainability can also be twisted and perverts a little bit into essentially being sustaining the current disequilibrium that we've got. is it's always quite a conservative position. So I suppose mm. the challenge is to see if we want sort of conservative sustainability, which is rules imposed, which creates mm. inadvertent, perverse incentives, or if it's a more optimistic form of sustainability, mm. which has to allow for more innovation. And the challenge there is that if we allow ourselves to look at sustainability, grand mm. challenge, wicked problems for more, optimistic point of view, we allow ourselves the luxury of at least addressing current problems and future problems with future technology rather than future problems with only current technology. Mm. And the other thing with innovation is that it changes the incentives. So if innovation is allowed to run a bit further forward, we can start to come up with more sustainable, but also economically efficient sort of solutions to a lot of our problems. And I mean, I like have be doing some reading lately about crazy mm. ways to instead of mining by digging in the ground, you can sort of mine by planting trees and tapping their sap. you know, as a way to have a more sustained mm. innovation. So those are things that no one would—I would never would have thought of that. But mm-hmm. someone has because they address the problem from an optimistic point of view: the preference, mm. innovation over regulation. I know a lot of the conversation, uh, particularly in our industry, in the futures industry and in the eco industry, is very pessimistic, and they see that mm. only suppression, regulation, and Pessimistic sustainability is seen as the only way to solve our sustainability problems. Mm. But I don't know if I agree with that. Based on the incentives in play, and based on the fact that you know the Western consensus, the Beijing or the, or the sort of the German consensus of the of the world, isn't, they no longer have the monopoly power. They they don't those mm. those those poles don't have the ability to impose that world order upon a developing world with very different incentives so mm. there's only so much you can do through suppression and oppression of naughty things and there's a whole lot more you can do if you can get win-win solutions and they, mm. they do require mm-hmm. some optimism which is very unfashionable at the moment i don't know what your thoughts are yeah. there. am i am i being naive because i'm not a natural <laughs> optimist but i have found myself in a role of being a reluctant optimist because it seems right. to be a necessity in the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, as you're talking, I, I was thinking um, it's really, it's really, it doesn't seem like it's related at all, but it was reminding of uh, me of, of martial arts and um, you know, in, in traditionally in um, martial arts, if you were a, let's say a, a master and you came into a, a town. And um you wanted to teach, you know, martial art martial artists in the in the village or town, all the other martial artists who are other masters would challenge you to a fight, right? And because they wanted to ensure that you were actually good, right? Before you could actually do, you know, what you were gonna do. And it wasn't it wasn't about rules, it was just about like, can you do what you can do, right? Um and and they would have their kind of fight, right? But now we have like lots of rules around that. Like you can't do that anymore, <laughs> right? Um, and so all you have to do is follow the rules, and you're a qualified martial artist to teach. But it doesn't really mean you can perform in the real world, right? Um, so one of the things that rules do sometimes is they, is rules are part of games, right? They're not really part of real world. So as soon as you move like rules, you move into a game. And then, as soon as you're game, then you're not really you're not fully equipped to face reality. I mean, sure, the, and the game can work, right? We know that it, the rules will work in some level, but, in um, a
1: closed system. but within in the in closed a, system, in a yeah. flattened, closed, simplified system.
0: Yep, exactly. So, I think I think the Arctic is a good place to think about this too. Is that do we want a um, a rule of law based Arctic, or do we want more of an innovative Arctic? You know, do we want countries to collaborate and figure out? You know, um, how to navigate the change there and navigate the resource development in the region, you know, both, uh, for economic reasons and also in a sustainable fashion. Or do we want to just create rules and see what happens? I think if we create rules in the Arctic, um, kind of going back to your, your point is that I think we'll, we'll see countries like Russia and China not play by the rules because the rules are going to, the rules are going to not benefit them guaranteed. Right. And because it, it's typically going to be rules that prevent them from doing what they want to do in the region, which is extract resources and and develop sea routes. Um, so, you know, I think if we push rules in that region, you're going to have problems. You're going to create more conflict. Um, and if we go in more of the innovation route, whatever that could look like, I think that's where we'd invite collaboration. And we'd see um, everyone start to benefit from the resources that are available there, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, You know, it's interesting because like, as I think about it, it's like you could prevent the extraction of resources, but what then you do is you'd have to create more resources to prevent that extraction through military or rule-based enforcement, right? So you're going to waste the resources somewhere, somehow, you know, Uh, rules are not, uh, they're not free, (laughs) right? They're not necessarily cheap. So, you know, the innovation is going to cost, but so are the rules. Which one do you want?
1: That's a, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of these lessons, which is why I wanted to speak to you today about yeah. the Arctic, is that it's it's a great metaphor for not just for geopolitics, but also for business and for leadership, because it asks all those same questions, those questions around sustainability and growth, around rules and regulations or innovations, so even if you're leading a team in an office, if you are a, a very commercial interest Again, you've got this—you've got this choice to choose a sort of control, rule-based system or a trust and innovation-based system, mm. and they can both create sort of sustained systems, but they have very, very different outcomes that they produce. And I know that you and I have had a similar conversations towards the beginning of last year when mm-hmm. COVID started around the difference between sort of trust and control-based systems and responses to the global pandemic. And I think there's, again, quite a lot of parallels that play through there. So I also wanted to ask you if you had any further thoughts in that regard between the the value of trust-based systems versus control-based systems. And, of course, there are trade-offs that where Mm -hmm. you apply your resources ends up producing quite different results there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, trust is very important. I think. I mean, I think it is uh, uh, one of the key currencies of human-to-human interaction. Um, I mean, you see that in the digital space with like trustless systems, right? Where we're trying to get away from trust uh, or the need for trust to operate, um, which is interesting, right? So it is uh, this. It's a very. I think it's a, it's a, it's like a this foundational glue for a lot of things. Even we're operating within an organization, um, trust is key. And um, we do know that trust is at a global—I mean, I don't know if I'd say a global low all time, but it is like it—it it is a trending downward. Um, people don't trust leadership; they don't trust organizations as much as they had in the past. Um, there can, there's a potentially a lot of reasons for that. You know, if we go back to the Arctic, I think um, trust—you uh, know, trust—trust trust has been a big, I think, thing factor that has uh, kept the Arctic pretty demilitarized. Um, and open for the common good. Um, but I think, I think there's a key player in there that doesn't get talked. I mean, that is part of the geopolitics is the ice that's been there. And as that ice melts, um, it changes the game. Um, and trust then becomes a, a more important factor in the region. You know, and, um, you know, I, th- I think that's going to have the big impact. And how do you create trust between nations, right? Especially now is important. I think the Arctic can be an interesting model for that. Um, because it has been a a, a place of, cl- of cooperation and collaboration, it's been a place of trust. How do they sustain it um, as they're going through change? I think that'll be one of the big uh, challenges there. Um, I think you know the rule of law bringing that in. I think that will create. I think that would create distrust in the region um, because, again, Who those the rule it? of law. but...
1: Who enforces it?
0: Exactly, and and who's it's one really who's going to enforce does. it. And who creates the law? And typically, who's been creating the law? I mean, you know, it's it's going to be the European, U.S., Canadian kind of conglomerate, and then Russia is going to get you know pushed out, um, and they're not going to feel, um, you know, they're not going to feel like they should trust the process, right? And then if they don't trust the process, they're just going to isolate, right, and control, right? So it's interesting how you can see how that like. If you don't create trust, then isolation and control is it becomes the driver, right? Because there's no trust. Um, so you got to spend. I think you need to spend a lot more time creating trust in the world. I think that's what one of the key things we need uh, across the board, whether that between individuals, between organizations, within organizations, between countries, um, we need to establish more trust. And if we don't, then I think the the route we move is more control and rules.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, that seems to be the direction that we're attending in at the moment. I mean, I think that's very hard to deny. But I wanted to pick up on something you just said a minute ago, which is something that I've also been struggling with quite a lot in that so many of people who see the problem with control-based societies, Mm. centralization of control being enforced top-down, are building technological solutions, as you said, to build trustless systems. But is Mm -hmm. this not creating more problems than perhaps it is solving because we're replacing trust in a central authority with a trustless trust in a system or in a Mm -hmm. machine or in a piece of code. Does that actually solve the problem or does it just kick the can down the road or reshape the problem into a new shape that we're going to have to, to grapple with because the conversations around centralization mm-hmm. and decentralization are one part of the conversation we had having around yep. what technology can do to resist control. But I think the conversation around trust versus trustless is trustless system, something to be celebrated or is it something that we should be perhaps thinking about a bit deeper. What are your yeah. thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. I haven't thought about it a lot, but I think that's a great question. I think, um, you know i th- i one of my concerns is that with technology and the kind of things we're developing is that we lose a lot of our human skills right so i i could see in the future where you know everything is everything is trustless so you don't need trust anymore but you don't develop the skill for trust so you don't so you lose that what it you yeah. Score. <laughs> yeah so you don't we don't know what that is anymore so then trustlessness actually becomes unknown too it, it like we don't understand that either and then it's like, then you can easily be fooled, right? Um, it's like, because we don't understand trust and we trust everything almost. Yeah, judgment's gone. Um, and, and all just like automatic buy-in, just like everybody just buys in because it's trustless, right? But then, but you don't understand how to evaluate trust, right, and, and what's required for trust. Um, for a, a, a system, right? You know, um, also a robot or an AI, but also a human. I think you start to lose it for human to human interactions as well. Um, and you just kind of default to this. Well, everything's just trustless, so I can trust it <laughs> in some way. Um, but I think that becomes a real danger long term.
1: Yeah, it's a very it's a, it's an interesting conundrum because you're trying to fix our problems with more technology rather than perhaps yeah. with more humanity, which comes back to mm-hmm. right what I was speaking about at the beginning. The fact that the Arctic is such a great metaphor for all of our real problems are real problems, right? It's like we mm-hmm. can go back to good old Maslow and his much maligned hierarchy of needs. Yeah. All of our current discourse and conversation and conflict is around those sort of those top, much more vacuous layers of that that old, old pyramid, rather than around the real ones, around right. the wants, rather than around the needs and the must-haves. Mm. So I think it's a great conversation to sort of recenter us around well, things that we absolutely cannot do without, things like literal energy and water mm. and movement and connection and food. So I think it's, it's a worthwhile conversation to have and hopefully it sort of shapes a bit of thinking in people that are listening to this today. But I've taken up quite a lot of your time. Tyler, are there any points that you didn't get a chance to make today? And are there any dots that you can connect through mm. this conversation, which is follows your interest, but not necessarily your commercial interest, as much as right. perhaps your normal day job would say, if you want to connect yeah. that conversation at all, I want to give you that opportunity now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, just to the listeners, I think, you know, follow the Arctic. I think it is a very interesting and important space for many reasons. I mean, yes, as a, a climate change, maybe metric um but also as a geopolitical metric as well and if you follow things that are going on there um i think they have global implications and they also tell you a lot about what countries are thinking um even if they're not saying it on the surface you know um and then um you know i think i think the arctic's a great place to start to look at future potential future trajectories too so not only what's going on right now but how the future could play out Um, and also I think specifically within, like we've talked about the sustainability renewable space. I mean, if you're seeing countries highly developing oil and gas infrastructure in the region, uh, and shipping in the region, I mean, it's telling, giving you like, those are long-term things, long-term trajectories that take a lot of money and investment and and risk. Um, people aren't taking those risks and investment unless they think it's part of the future. Right. So that's something to watch. and then, um, you know, my work is uh, is on uh, future leadership and intelligence, and helping them how to use kind of neuroba- neuroscience-based um, processes to think about the future and build collaborative uh, futures and collaborative thinking. Um, so you can check us out at uh, hakuglobal. dot uh, com if you're interested in that. And one last point I, think I wanted to bring up too is uh, you talked about that um, the technology versus the humanity part of it. And in, in Hawaii, I actually worked on. Uh, sustainable or renewable energy education projects for the military and the Department of Education. And one of the interesting things is we had this great program. We go in and educate people on how to take responsibility, personal responsibility for their energy consumption within their buildings. Um, we would train them on how to energy audit their buildings. So they like had this real tangible connection to their energy consumption. <clears throat> and in the programs, we would um, not only teach them, but they would reduce their energy consumption by a lot. I mean, over a year, we could save one building in the military, a hundred thousand dollars just from behavior change. Um, and our program uh, was very successful. We tried to scale it. We, we could, we said we would bring this throughout the whole state. We would save the state um, eight, like something like $8.3 million a year. If we implemented this project and the state said, no, we don't want it. We want to, we want to invest in uh, solar panels. Right. Because, um, I don't know why, like they wanted the technology, they just wanted the technology more than they wanted the humanity part of it. You know, and, and the <laughs> funny thing was, we went in and made the changes, like people loved it. They loved to learn about that. They loved to have the power over the, the power. Agency. The agency, The agency yeah. Yeah.
1: to take control of your own future, not just yep. be part of that system again.
0: Yeah. And the collaboration that came out of it. And we also had like train the trainer program. So they would learn and then they would teach other people. And um, it was, it was really a great program. Um, they really connected to their, their space and others differently, but it's not what um, the, you know, the, the, I don't know, it wasn't part of the model. I don't think it's like the model is uh, sustainability is all about putting up solar panels, right. Or it's about using alternative fuels. Exactly. There
1: is money in a new industry. There's, there's, there's taxation opportunities and redistribution opportunities and opportunities for tenderpreneurs to get rich overnight. I mean, I am a South African, I'm allowed to say these things. Exactly. There's no, there's no money in behavior change, but it's the only way to have a really sustainable and inclusive future, right? If people, individuals change their behavior, then suddenly the rules over who's allowed to do what in the Arctic circle don't matter so much anymore. If there's not a yeah. buyer for what you're selling, you're going to change your behavior, yeah. which, which is, I think, the perfect message to conclude this with. And yeah. that's the behavior change does work, but do we mm-hmm. want it? Is that really yeah. what we want? And Again, our choices sort of show what it is that we really do want. So
0: yeah, I think that's it. I think think that is. I think the key, I guess the key somewhere here too, like looking at, you know, um, if we get so focused on the technology um, and we lose the behavior change component, we're not going to get to where we want to go. We're just going to have, the. it's basically the same kind of thinking, just framed differently.
1: Getting nowhere fast. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> Not very sustainable either, because we'll soon run exactly. out of those components eventually too, right? So, I mean, there's exactly. only so many Greenlands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Where can people find you if they would like to pick up this conversation or engage with your more professional work?
0: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just Tyler Mongan. Um, you can also find us again at uh, www.hakuglobal.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roland.